Well, um, as you can see, we're having a lot of technical difficulties. And when you, when I finish this sermon today, you're going to be like, now I know why we're having technical difficulties. Uh, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air. And we normally, I mean, you can ask anyone that that's usually here week in and week out. We usually never have technical difficulties, but leave it to Easter Sunday to try to get us distracted and, and things like that. But that's why we want to gather together as a family. And uh, we want this to have a family feel and not a show feel. Not like, you know, we're, we're putting on a show for you, but that a family's getting together to worship Christ. Um, so in his popular book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes about a fictional dialogue between an older and more experienced demon named Screwtape. As he writes letters to a younger and more inexperienced demon named Wormwood, they are doing their best to deceive a British soldier, who they call the patient, in the days of World War II, who has recently become a Christian. In the preface of the book, C.S. Lewis writes this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils or demons. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils or the demons are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Here's what C.S. Lewis was saying, because sometimes when I read C.S. Lewis, I need, I need it dumbed down for me a little bit. C.S. Lewis is saying here that we can either live life like we don't have an enemy, or we can live life overran by terror because we do. So in today's text, Paul begins to prepare the church for what is to come and some for what is already taking place. Remember, in that day, the church was suffering. The church was not gathering in, in public like this. They had, to, they had to gather in secret places because if they were caught, they would be separated from their families, some of them taken out into the street and murdered because they were worshiping the risen Christ. So some of them were fighting a very real enemy in that day. And Paul here in these, in these last few verses of Ephesians, he's trying to tell them, hey, this is, this is what we are meant to do. So the question is, who is our enemy? And the answer is, we don't just have one enemy. We have many enemies. We have death. We have sin or the flesh. We have the world or worldliness. And we have Satan. So in Ephesians chapter 6, just the first couple of verses, 10 through 12, Paul speaks specifically about a very real enemy who the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle Peter says to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He says that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. So my hope is today that the Word of God would speak loudly and directly to us and awaken us from our state of either living life as the enemy did not exist or being obsessed with the idea that all the bad things that happen to me in life are his fault. So we either live life like he doesn't exist and we just totally ignore it or we live life totally obsessed with the fact 
that he's just trying to make my life miserable. Now, are there aspects of that? Yes. But some of it has to do with our own foolishness, our own sinfulness. Look at verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, finally. Okay, so remember, we always stop when there's a therefore because we ask the question, what is the therefore therefore? Okay, so Paul here is saying, therefore, because we've said all these things, we've looked at who God is and what he's done in Christ. We are his church in Christ. What are we to do and, and who we are in Christ and now how we are strong in the Lord, the captain of our lives and in the strength of his might. So it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his what? His might in the strong in the strength of his might. So if we know the indicative. Look, look at me for just a minute. We talked about a few weeks ago, we talked about the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is what we know, okay? The indicative is what we know. The imperative is what we are to do, okay? So in the Christian faith, we operate out of, I know who I am in Christ, so now I'm going to act like a son or a daughter. I know that my dad owns the whole world, so now I'm going to act in correspondence to that fact. Look at Psalm 119, if you were, would turn there very quickly. Psalm chapter 119, one of the longest chapters of the Bible. And I'm going to read 75 through 77. Psalm 119, 75 through 77. It says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And in the, that in your faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. So here the psalmist is saying that I love, I love the laws of God. That's not something we do away with in the New Testament age. We love God's rules. Why? Because God sets boundaries for us. He sets boundaries for us because He loves us. Just like if you're a parent in this room, you set boundaries for your kids. Why? Because you love them. And we love God's rules because God loves us. Do you see how the indicative works with the imperative? God loves us and we love His rules because we love Him in return. And the psalmist is saying here, even though you have afflicted me, he's speaking to God here, even though you have afflicted me, even though you have brought suffering upon me, I love you because I love your law. Look at verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 6. Turn back there. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? The devil. Okay. So if you make notes in your Bible, circle that, put on. Put on the whole armor of God. So I want to make this as simple as I, as I possibly can. Okay. Because I need things done simply. Okay. So when my wife and I sit down to, we pay our bills together. We sit down and we do this together. 
I, I tell her, make sure and talk to me like I'm an eight-year-old, okay? And then sometimes I, you get to talk to me like I'm five now, okay? Because I don't, I don't get what you're doing, okay? I'm not a math guy. I'm an English guy, okay? She's a math person, okay? So I want to make this as simple as, as possible as we get to, to the different parts of the armor in just a bit. The whole armor of God is the same thing as being in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? The whole armor of God, when Paul speaks of the whole armor of God, he's saying you are in Christ Jesus. Okay? If we are united to Christ in His life, in His suffering, in His death, in His resurrection, and His ascension, we have the whole armor of God. If we are in Christ, we are wearing this whole armor that we're going to speak of in just a minute. So why do we wear the armor? Look at the rest of verse 11. Why do we wear the armor? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let me remind you of a quick scheme real quick of the devil. If you go all the way back, and we don't have to turn there, but if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, okay? So Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates all things good. And He places man and woman in the garden to steward that garden. And He says, you can have whatever you want in this garden, just do not eat of this one tree. And guess what they do? Chapter 3. The serpent comes, the devil comes, and he whispers into the ear. And he says, you can be like God. And they eat of the fruit on that day as our representatives. Adam and Eve on that day are our representatives. Because you might ask the question like, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to kick Adam in the pants. Because how could he mess it up like that? You would have made the same decision. Because we have a longing inside of us, a sinful desire to be our own gods. Think about, for just a moment, think about a baby that's born. Is that, is that baby, does that baby come out of the womb obedient to mom and dad? You have to train them up into the, to, to the ways that you have set in your household. They come in rebellious and crying out what? Me. Feed me. Change me. Hug me. All these things. You came into the world the same way. I came into the world the same way. We all want to be our own gods. Look at verse 12. Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul tells the church that our battle is not against what we might see here in the physical world with our human eyes, but our battle is against what? Powers and principalities, supernatural powers. And this, let me remind you of this, okay? I always want to give you, I always want to follow up bad news with good news. The enemy has a real but limited rule on this world. He has a real but limited rule on this world. Let's think about it for just a minute. And I have no idea what you experienced with coronavirus. 
but I believe that the coronavirus is on a very short and sovereign leash. And I, I feel like we're starting to see, we're starting to come out of all that. But it is by God's sovereign hand and his decree that he allows things like this to take place. And think about what the coronavirus did for us. Some families had to hunker down for weeks at a time and could not get out of their house. Why? Because they didn't want to get sick. But also it taught us to what? Slow down. To appreciate things, to appreciate life, to appreciate our kids, maybe, for some of you. Some of you might have wanted to kill your kids by the end of the day. The overarching image that Paul wants, wants us to see here in the original language in verse 12 is that we are locked in a hand-to-hand combat with an enemy who hates us. Okay? This is the imagery that Paul is trying to get us to see here in verse 12 is that, that we're locked into hand-to-hand combat. Okay, imagine with me two wrestlers that are coming against each other and they're, they're locking hands. This is what Paul is trying to, trying to get us to see here. And not only does he want to wrestle us down and subdue us, but he wants to kill us. Look at me for just a minute. The devil wants you to die. He wants your family to die. He wants to ruin everything. The devil is not playing games with your family. We are fighting a very real battle. I want to give you an illustration. So there's a branch of law enforcement that all they look for is counterfeit money. Okay? So the question is, how do they know counterfeit money and not counterfeit money? If you work in a bank, you might know this, okay? How do they know? Because there's counterfeit money. Barb, you can probably, uh, and Krista, y'all can probably tell me on this. Counterfeit money looks a lot like real dollar bills. 20s, 50s, 100s, all those. It looks very, very close. Here's how that branch of law enforcement, here's how they, um, how, how they know counterfeit money. Okay, look at me for just a second. They study the authentic bill their whole life. So they take an authentic 20, they, t- they take an authentic 50, an authentic, uh, authentic, wow, a real, not counterfeit, $100 bill, a $1 bill, and they study it. They, they feel how it feels, they smell it, they, they, they study these, these bills so that when a counterfeit comes across, guess what? They know exactly what a counterfeit is. Okay? So what does this have to do with what we're talking about? You're going to see it just, in just a moment. Look at verse 13 in Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 13. It says, therefore, remember, therefore, circle that therefore. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Remember, we're in Christ Jesus that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Okay? And then he launches us. Paul launches us into the specific pieces of the armor of God. Okay, remember, the whole armor of God. We're in Christ Jesus. Now Paul's going to get very specific in verses 14 through 17 about the pieces that we wear. Okay? So we have the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness, 
the shoes of the gospel of peace on our feet, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of truth. These are the, the, the pieces of uh, these are the specific pieces of the whole armor of God. OK, and I want to break these down for just a minute. The belt of truth that we wear is capital T truth. We know it. We live it. We love it. And we speak it. Did you get that? Look at me for just a sec. We know it. We love it. We live it. And we speak it. You remember like that counterfeit bill? We know when counterfeit gospels are trying to make their way into our family. Why? Because we study the scriptures. And our, nose are, our noses are constantly in the Bible. We are creatures of the word. We are driven by the word of God. Because we love His law. Why? Because He loves us. You see, you see how it takes us all the way back to the indicative? Because God loves us. Because He saved us. Because of the great mercy which He had for us. Now we love Him out of that love. So, we have the belt of truth. I feel like a wrestler up here. You know, the belt of truth. Okay? We have this truth. That holds up our whole, all of our garments, okay? And then we have the breastplate of righteousness. This protects our hearts from deception. Listen to me. The worst advice anybody could ever give you is to follow your heart. Why? Because the Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked. And it only wants selfish things. So my advice to you is never going to be... Follow your heart. My, my advice to you is going to say, get your nose in the book. Get your nose in the book. Don't follow your heart because it's going to deceive you. So we have the breastplate of righteousness that protects our hearts from deception. And then we have shoes on our feet. I'm going to read this out of Isaiah 52.7. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Soldiers in that day, they needed a very specific footwear because they would walk in places that they needed like hiking boots. So this is what Paul is saying here. He says, you need a very specific kind of shoe. And here's something else that I think Paul is getting to. In that day, in that context, slaves and servants in the household did not wear shoes. But sons and daughters did. Isn't that good? That Paul is reminding us here. You need to put on the shoes. Why? Because you're a son and you're a daughter. You're a son and daughter of God. And you wear shoes. The shield of faith that we get to. And this was not just this like piddly little, like, you know, your kids might have in their toy box, this little round thing. These were massive shields that the, the church or the, the, the armies in those days, they would get together and it was like a door. You had to find a way around these shields. That's what Paul is pointing to here. That each soldier would stand with this shield in front of them. And the, the arrows of the army would not be able to penetrate through because they would stand so close 
to one another, that there was no gaps in between. You see why unity among the church is so important? Paul is saying here, we have to be unified. He's not speaking to just one person here. He's speaking to the whole church. We need to be unified and hold our shields together. And there can be no way for the, for the enemy to get in. So what does that look like for me and for you? It's that I love you so much that when I see you go off into sin, that I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you back. Because I want, I want your heart to be protected. I want your head to be protected. I want you to be protected from all sides. So we're standing together as one body with these shields together saying, the enemy's not going to have a way in. And then the helmet of salvation. And this was not just, again, some dinky little thing that you set on your head. This protected your jaw. It would protect your mouth. It would protect your eyes. This thing weighed a ton what Paul is trying to get us to see here look at Romans chapter 12 verse 2 some of you guys might have this memorized Romans 12 2 says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your what by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect this is what Paul is saying here Our minds need to be protected by what? The Word of God. We need to be protected. And lastly, the sword of truth. We live with the Scriptures in our faces. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted by the very same enemy that tempted man and woman in the garden, He responds with what? It is written or it says. Jesus Himself, the Son of God, responds with the Word of God. When Satan comes to Him, He says, hey, jump. And I'm sure you'll get caught by angels. Hey, you see all this? Just bow your knee to Me and I'll give it to you. And Jesus responds with, it says or it is written. Jesus was serious about God's Word. So if Jesus was serious about God's Word, Should His people be serious about God's Word? Absolutely. Thank you, Lucas. Finally got someone awakened here. So how do we accomplish this? What's our tactic for battle? You're like, okay, Ricky, you got me jacked up. I'm ready to go, you know, put my camos on and, you know, all that. I'm, I'm ready to fight. You got me. I'm behind you. This is how we do it. Okay, you ready? We pray. You're like, that's it? We pray? And I'm like, what do you mean that's it? Lately, on some afternoons, I've been coming into this building and I've been crying out to God on your behalf in this place. I go to where you sit and I have cried tears, pleading for God to do a work in your family, pleading for God to do a work in your heart, pleading for God to do a work in our city. Why? Because we fight a very real enemy. And that's how I come against this enemy as your pastor is to come in here and pray and call on God and expect big things for God. If we serve a big God, we're going to see big things happen. We have to believe it. and We have to fight in prayer. Men, for those of you who are married and have kids, are you fighting for your families in prayer on your knees with tears running down your face? 
Are they serious? Are, you, are your prayers serious for your family? Moms, when you're making your, your, the, the, your kids' beds, are you crying out to God on their behalf for your kids? This is serious. Prayer has to be the very first tactic that we have when we go to battle. Look at verses 18 through 20. Paul begins to close up the letter here. He says, praying at all times in what? In the capital S, Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. This isn't some some language that comes out of us. It is, we're we're praying seriously before the throne of God. That's what he means to be praying in the Spirit. Praying expectantly that God is going to do something. Praying in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, Paul reminds them, I'm suffering, I'm in jail. That words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we're praying at all times in the Spirit, praying with and for one another, praying for our spiritual leaders, praying for boldness to preach the Gospel, no matter the circumstances. And I'm going to tell you this right now. The circumstances might be changing in the next few years. And as a pastor, I look at what's coming for the future of the United States of America and my job might get a whole lot harder. But God has, God has, he has said to me, preach the gospel. No matter what any other church in town is doing, preach the gospel. Preach the scriptures. Even if you have four people who show up on Sunday, preach the gospel. I want to tell you this. And again, I want you to know that everything that I say from here is said in love. A quick glance at a devotional or a prayer when you need a good parking spot, it's not going to work. John Piper says this, Satan devotes 168 hours a week trying to deceive you. Do you think you can maintain a renewed mind with a 10-minute glance at God's Word? You can, you can apply that to prayer too. You think that a quick glance or a quick prayer is going to get you through your week when Satan has 168 hours that he's trying to deceive you? You do not wake up one day and think, wow, I'm godly. Like, holy cow, like, where did that come from? You don't get blindsided by godliness. But I will tell you this, you will slip into worldliness. You will drift into worldliness, little by little, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week. We will drift into worldliness. How? Prayerlessness. Not taking God's word seriously. We will drift into worldliness. Holiness 
takes work. It takes devotion. It takes discipline. And it takes time. And that's what we want to equip, we, equip you with here at Redeemer. That's why we have classes on biblical foundations and, and things like that. Because we want to teach you how to read God's Word. We don't want ever want anyone to come and feel dumb. We want you to feel equipped. We want you to say, here's some tools. Now we want to show you how to use these tools and walk away and use them at home. Little by little. Because it takes work. It takes discipline. It takes time. It takes devotion. I want to end with this. This is from the introduction of Dr. Mark, Dr. Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity. He says this. What would it look like if Satan took over or took control of a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over a city, all the bars would be closed. Um, all, you know, all the dirty magazines would be put away. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. There would be, uh, the children would all say yes sir and no ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ would not be preached. If Satan took control of a city, here's, here's what he would do, especially to Christians. He would lull you to sleep. Little by little. Whispering in your ear, ah, oh, we don't need that. Little by little, putting you to sleep until you drift into dreams of worldliness, sinfulness. A church who is lulled to sleep by the world is not a church at all. Let me say that again. A church who is lulled to sleep by the world is not a church at all. That's a big statement for a pastor to say. And that statement will probably get around town. And I'm not coming against any other churches. What I'm saying is, is that if the church wants to look more like the world, it is no longer a church. It's a social gathering. Because Christ will not be preached. Why? Because the gospel is offensive. How? Because you cannot save yourself. You need someone to come in and save you. You need someone to come and forgive you. So we here at Redeemer, we do, and I know this is, this is a funny thing to say on an Easter Sunday. We do not exist to be a place for you to just come and sit and not participate. We exist to war against a very real enemy. We exist to push back darkness in our city. But how does that happen if you are asleep and all you want is your best life now? Parents, are we raising moralists? Are we raising children who are desperate for the things of God? Humble and they know who they are in Christ. Husbands, is your first love Christ or only what your wife can give you? Church, are we awake or are we asleep? We have to. We have to wake up. So why do we take this so seriously? Because of the gospel. 
We serve a king who willingly came to live among rebels, died a death that those rebels deserve to die, walked up out of the grave after three days, proving to be who he said he always was, and now sits and intercedes for his church. He is sustaining her and will one day present her blameless, without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. He is a victorious king and he will not be defeated. All of this, all of what we're saying today, all of it is done in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus would have been like those other little G gods who are still in their graves, we would not have a savior to worship. But you can go to the tomb and you can see that it's empty. You can see that He is no longer there. The accounts are true in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where those women came to the tomb to grieve. And there they found no one. Because Jesus had defeated death. We are in a very real battle We are in a very real battle for an enemy who wants to kill you, who wants to steal from you, who wants to disrupt everything in your family, who wants to distract you with worldliness and loneliness. Look at Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to end with this scripture. Colossians 1. Starting in verse 15, begins there with the preeminence of Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Look at verse 23. That first phrase there makes us nervous. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, moment of transparency for, you, for what we believe at Redeemer. We believe you cannot lose your salvation. We believe once you are in Christ, you are never out of Christ. Once you are united to Him, you are united to Him forever. But here's what Paul is saying in this, just this one verse. Look at the fruit in your life. Is the fruit in your life that one of a Christian? Or is it one of someone who belongs to the world? These are hard things for me to say. Because I have to take a look at my own life. Even as a pastor, I have to still look at myself in the mirror and ask myself the question, does the fruit in your life look more like Christ or look more like the world? 
So here's the only thing we have to offer you at Redeemer. If you came into this place and you're hearing some of this for the very first time, we want you to know this. There is a very real God who loves you. And He gave His Son willingly on the cross in your place to die the death, a substitutionary death that you and I deserve to die. Defeated death after three days and now lives and reigns in heaven interceding for His church. And if you came into this place and you're like, man, I hear that every Sunday. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But we want to encourage the saints here. We don't want to cause any kind of of questions in your head that might lead you to go look something up on Google. We want you to come here and ask the questions here. So why are we so serious about this? Because this is a life and death matter. There is a city here, Hutchison County is made up of 20,000 people. And on any given Sunday, we have 52 churches in Borger. In, actually, in Hutchison County, 52 churches, evangelical Christian churches. And about 2,000 people are going to church on any given Sunday. Where are the other 18,000 people? We don't need just one more church. We need 100 more churches to be planted in this area who are gospel serious, who are biblically serious, who are dependent on the Spirit. Why? Because we fight a very real battle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers who want to come and destroy us. Church, I love you too much to not tell you the truth. I love you too much to not preach the Bible to you. I love you too much to not preach the gospel. I would do it to a room that was full and I would do it to a room that I had three people in. Because that's what God has tasked you with. And that's what God has tasked you with. Let's pray.